Well, this morning, the passage that uh, we have before us is Revelation, the first six verses of Revelation 20, which is really at the center of the whole eschatological debate regarding the book of Revelation and eschatology in general. And I know for some of you, there's nothing you would like more than if we dove in and started digging through all the eschatological issues that are addressed here. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to save that part until next week during adult Sunday school before church. And we'll address those issues then. Um, The reason for this is that I know that though some people are eager for these things to be addressed, there are others who just need to be fed the spiritual food that is abundant in this passage. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. Uh, Obviously we have to address some things just to understand the passage. And that will indicate to those who are aware of the issues where what my interpretation is. But I'm going to focus on the spiritual food that uh, God has fed his people in this passage. As I said, the uh, passage is one through six, but it's in two parts. And we're going to treat them separately at first. And uh, that means I'm just going to read the first half, the first three verses now, and then after we finish explaining that, we'll read the second three verses. So Revelation 21 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not receive, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So John here sees an angel coming down from heaven with a key and a chain who takes hold of the dragon, who is Satan, and binds him and throws him into the pit and seals it over him for a thousand years. Now we're told that the dragon is Satan right in the passage. The angel, we're not told, but by what he does, he must either be Jesus or some representative of God from heaven who's doing God's work in binding the devil. But what is this thousand years? And what does it mean that Satan is bound for these thousand years? Well, we're not told here what the thousand years are, but we are told what kind of restraining is meant by Satan being bound and thrown into the pit. The second half of verse 3 here tells us that Satan was bound for a thousand years and thrown into the pit so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now what does that mean? 
Well, the first thing is that the Greek word for nations that's used here is ethne. Plural for ethnos, from which we get the word ethnic. About 40% of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's translated nations. And the other 60% of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's translated Gentiles. This is the word for Gentiles. You see, from the perspective of Israel, there were the Jews, and then there was everybody else, the nations, the Gentiles. All through the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Israel. But the rest of the nations were locked up in satanic deception. But as you know, when Jesus came, it was time for this to end. Jesus was too great a savior to save only the Jews. As it says in Isaiah 49, 6. It was time for Satan to be held back from his lock grip of deception over the Gentiles, over the nations. And that's what this binding of Satan in Revelation 22 seems to be about. It was preventing Satan from maintaining his almost total deception over the Gentile people groups that he'd enjoyed until that time. It's not that Satan at this time stopped functioning or having any influence whatsoever. He was allowed to continue deceiving many, just not to hold the nations in a headlock of deception, preventing them from coming to know God. Now, when Jesus comes, his hold is broken. And the gospel is free to penetrate even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I have a couple pictures. Are we ready to put the pictures up? Okay, put the first picture up. When we think, don't think of this kind of being bound when we think of this passage, but rather think of this kind of being bound. So Satan is bound, not that he can't do anything, but that he was restrained from doing everything he'd like to do. It's not preventing Satan from being active on the earth. It's only preventing him from continuing to prevent the Gentiles from coming to know the God of Israel. That's what verse 3 says. We see this actually in the Gospels. Jesus himself spoke of his work of binding the devil in several places. One is Matthew 12, 22 to 29. You see, Jesus cast a demon out of a man. And then he explained his ability to do this by saying, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, same word, the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The idea is 
that in delivering this man from Satan's domination, Jesus had plundered one of Satan's treasures. And in order to do that, he first had to bind the strong man, Satan, enabling him to plunder Satan's house and take Satan's, some of tre- Satan's treasures. And who are these treasures Jesus is plundering from Satan's house? They are the souls of men and women who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And these dear ones of Christ are being freed from Satan's dark dominion and collected into the kingdom of Christ's light. In both Matthew 12 and in Revelation 20, the binding of Satan means that in this present age, Christ is rescuing his chosen ones from Satan's grip. Satan is bound so that sinners can be freed. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Christ took on human flesh that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The evening before Christ's crucifixion, in John 12, Jesus told his disciples, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now let's talk about the thousand years. The first thing we can see is that if this is talking about no longer allowing Satan to keep the Gentiles away from God, then it's obvious that the thousand years begins with the work of Jesus when he was here. It's also obvious that the thousand years must be continuing today because Gentiles all over the world continue to come to Christ. This means that the thousand years in Revelation 20 is not a literal thousand years, which doesn't surprise us because many of the numbers in Revelation are not literal. The number 1,000 in particular is frequently used in the Bible in a non-literal way. He has remembered his covenant forever, forever, the word he commanded to a thousand generations. Psalm 105.8 The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Psalm 50.10 A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Psalm 90 verse 4 With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, 2 Peter 3.8. The nature of the book of Revelation is not to be precise. It's full of symbols and images. Of course, if Jesus wanted to spell it out correctly and tell us every detail, he could have done that, but he didn't. So when does the thousand years end? But we're told that after a thousand years, Satan will be released for a short time. And then, and next week we'll see in 7 through 10, that after he's released, he initiates that great final confrontation, which we saw occurs at the end of history. 
So the thousand years seem to be the period of time between Christ's first coming and the end of history when he returns again. The time period in which many Gentiles are drawn to Christ. But while Satan is bound on earth during the thousand years, something else has been going on in heaven during this same period of time. And we read about that in the second half of this passage, verses 4 to 6. So let's read that portion of the scripture now. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their his mark on or its mark on their on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So in this second part of the vision, John sees a great number of thrones. And sitting on these thrones are certain people. Now there's a number of translation questions in this section, but the basic meaning seems clear. These people on the thrones are God's people who have died and are now with him in heaven. They are the ones to whom the authority to judge has been committed. They are those who have been beheaded for, the te- for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They are those who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They are those who came to life and reigned with Christ for the thousand years. They are the ones over whom the second death has no power. And they are the ones who will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for the thousand years. So during the period of time represented by these thousand years, the period we're in right now, while Satan is being prevented from stopping the progress of the gospel among the Gentiles, up in heaven, the saints of God who remain true to Christ in spite of opposition and even in spite of death are enjoying life as kings and priests, knowing that they've been set free from the powers of hell. Now we're not given many details of what their lives are actually like. What is life like in a disembodied soul? How much do they know about what's happening here to us on earth? Do they have any role in earthly affairs? What does it mean that they are priests? But we are told that they are not only alive, but that they are living good and meaningful and triumphant and even glorious lives as they wait to be reunited with their fellow believers who still dwell on earth. 
And that means that if our faith is real, if our faith endures to the end, we'll then join them in that life. That life with which Jesus himself referred to as paradise to the thief on the cross. It's no wonder that Paul says to die is gain. So what about the first resurrection and the second death mentioned here in verse 6? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. So let's talk about the first resurrection. It tells us what the first resurrection is in verse 4. Those who have been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then parenthetically it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And then it says this is the first resurrection, referring to the end of four. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the first resurrection is when those who believe in Christ die and go to heaven. And then in, in doing so they come to life and reign with Christ for the rest of the thousand years. The second resurrection, presumably, is the final resurrection of all people on the final day. The first is a spiritual resurrection. The second, a physical resurrection. Now, what is the second death? The second death is also explained, but not in this passage. A few verses later, we're told what the second death is. It says in verse 14 of Revelation 20, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the first death is when you die at the end of your life. The second death is when you're cast into hell. This is what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, that's the first death, but cannot kill the soul, that's the second death. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, brothers and sisters, there are many things happening in this world and in many of our lives which are discouraging, disheartening, frustrating. We need the encouragement of God's word. And there are three very precious truths here in this passage that I think can uplift us and sustain our spirits in the face of many burdens and trials. The first one is that God is able to restrain the devil. Now this doesn't take anything away from the enmity that exists between God and Satan. It doesn't take anything away from God's hatred for evil. But Revelation has made it clear over and over again that God ultimately is in charge of Satan. 
and that he only can do what God allows him to do. And here it is again. What confidence this gives us when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Which is really a better way to translate that portion of the Lord's Prayer than to deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. And what comfort this gives. The one who has power even over the most potent of creatures. Creatures that make us look puny and impotent. Such that his servants can grab them and throw them down and tie them up and restrain their power for a thousand years. That one is the one who loves his people. Who will stop at nothing to secure their welfare and their holiness. He is the one who will not allow one hair on their heads to be harmed unless it is in their best interests. That's a God who deserves much honor and praise. He certainly deserves a lot more than I give him. We should not only be grateful for a God who has power over Satan, but we should be also grateful for a God who is mercifully restraining him in this world and for his people even now. It is because God is restraining Satan in this age that you and I can know Jesus. When he got shackled, we got unshackled. The second truth that I'd like to bring out is that we live in an age when the gospel continues to spread. Sinners all over the world are being won to Christ. And therefore, this is an age of boldness. We can act as if God's power, I'm sorry, we can act as if Satan's power is restricted and go forth in boldness and in confidence of God's desire to break through to many people with the light of his love. We are given authority to proclaim the gospel and call people to come to Christ. I remember when I was in college, there were people coming to Christ on every side. It was like popcorn that began to pop and just continued. It's not that way anymore, around here at least it seems. But it is happening in some other places in the world. We've had, as a congregation, the amazing privilege of hearing about it happening in West Africa. And we know it's happening in much of Africa, and in China, and in Iran. God is building his kingdom, even to the far corners of the earth. When the prophet Isaiah was called to speak God's message... In Isaiah chapter 6, he was specifically told that his message would not be received. That it would fail. The people wouldn't listen. 
get yourself in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. But in this age, in the age of Christ, God has not ordained his gospel to fail. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now certainly there are many times when the gospel is not listened to even in our day. But overall God has not chosen his gospel to fail. But to succeed, to conquer, to subdue, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is going into every nation, every tribe, every language group to rescue those in that group that are his. And Satan is powerless to stop it. This is the age of missions. In every land there are those who will respond and who will worship We can send missionaries into lands where there are no believers in Christ, even though it seems ludicrous to expect anything to come good from that. And yet we do so in obedience to Christ and we contest Satan's right to rule in those places of darkness because Christ is restraining Satan and allowing his gospel to spread. We're not Christ's only treasures. He's going to houses and fields and offices and prisons and ugly places all over the world and plundering treasures for himself. I want that one. This one is mine. The third truth. One day we will reign with Christ in heaven. But even now we are already conquering. I don't know if you heard about this, but three weeks, pretty amazing, three weeks ago in Chicago, Kelvin Kiptum. Did anybody know what happened three weeks ago in Chicago with Kelvin Kiptum? No? Too bad. This Kenyan broke the world record in the marathon by 34 seconds. Amazing. The uh, time was 2 hours and 35 seconds. So it won't be long probably till we have a 2 hour marathon. 26 miles being run. So he now reigns as world champion. But I can tell you something about those two hours and 35 seconds between when they said go and when Kelvin crossed the finish line. They were grueling. He was not smiling. He was not laughing. He was not relaxing. He was fighting. He was pressing. 
He was pushing. The truly remarkable thing about this feat is not the way that he crossed the finish line, not the way that he fell down and held up his arms in triumph after he was done. It's the way that he pressed on step after step even when his body was longing to stop. And I think that beautifully illustrates Christian perseverance. It's pressing through the ordinary parts of life because of Christ. It's doing our duty not to gain human approval but because Christ calls us to do it. It's accepting disappointments, not because there's nothing else we can do about it, but because you know that God's will is better than yours. It's loving someone who drives you crazy because Jesus loves us even when we're not lovable. It's thanking God for our blessings even when our unfelt needs scream much louder. No, our unmet, felt needs scream louder. These little moments of life, they don't receive much celebration. No trumpets get blown, no graffiti falls upon us. But those little choices, those little acts... Those little deeds of faithfulness are precious in the sight of the Lord. And He remembers them even after we've long forgotten them. The book of Revelation was written in a time of intense persecution. Many of the believers were deeply grieved to see their loved ones, their believing friends, killed senselessly by those who hated God and hated his people. One of the main purposes of this book of Revelation is to encourage those who remain to understand where their martyred friends are and what they're doing now that they're dead. And he wants them to see that death is an enthronement. Not only will their, will their souls be raised up to be with the Lord, but, not, but all of God's people will be raised up on the last day and after we die to a place of glory and power. In Romans 8, where Paul has been talking about things like tribulation, distress, persecution, danger, he says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 37. And as I've told you before, they don't know how to translate this in a way that really depicts what's going on here. The, uh, the, Paul invents a new word here. He takes the, uh, the word um, for super, like we have superman. We took a, the, the prefix super and added it to man. We have superman. Well, he took the prefix for super and he added it to conquer. So we are super conquerors. 
through him who loved us. We live in an age of opposition and progress. We live in an age of persecution and an unstoppable gospel. In each of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you remember that Jesus promises a great reward for those who conquer. How do we conquer? We conquer by persevering. By taking one step after another, even when you feel like giving up. We conquer by maintaining our faith in spite of opposition, in spite of failures, in spite of tragedies. Think about it. The story of Jesus himself looked like it was going to end in failure and humiliation. And even he felt the weight of it at Gethsemane. So that he asked for it to end and for him not to have to go through with it. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. And it didn't end in failure and humiliation. And there are days for us when it looks like we're losing the battle. But God will not let that happen. Let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we treasure the love that you have for us, the faithfulness you show to us. And Lord, even though we often are bewildered by the things that you allow to happen in our lives, we thank you that one day we'll understand it all. And that our hearts will be filled with praise. That we'll be glad that things happened just the way they did. We thank you, dear Lord, that someday soon we'll be with our loved ones who have gone before us in faith. Reunited in the heavenly places as kings and as priests to dwell with Jesus in paradise. Help us to persevere. Help us not to give in to those voices of the evil one that tell us to give up. Thank you so much that as we run this marathon of faith that you feed us that you nourish us we thank you for the Lord's Supper and pray that you'd be with us now as we partake of it draw near to us dear Lord we pray in Jesus name Amen